Welcome to Live Arts Market Pulse on the Artelligence Podcast. Each week, Live Arts sales team discusses the most important subjects in the ever-changing art marketplace. I'm your host, Marion Maneker. Welcome to another Live Art Market Pulse podcast. Today we're going to discuss the upcoming day sales in the New York auctions. It used to be that the day sales were a whole jumble of works, the minor works, works on paper, all sorts of different um, objects to be sold. With the increasing interest in the contemporary art market, there is so much work to be sold. We're getting sort of day sales in the mid-season sales and these day sales are increasingly, though they still include works on paper and uh, other uh, works related to uh, evening sale lots, there are more and more evening sale uh, artists and lots showing up in the day sales. So I've got a long list of artists who have three or more uh, works in the day sales that I thought I'd try and get George O'Dell, Sophie Coco, and Arena Novak's opinions on and hear their general take on where they think the market is going, especially since the day sales feature many of the artists and works that they sell on a day-to-day basis. But first, let's start with uh, just the characters of the day sales. I know, Arena, you have been looking closely at uh, Christie's, and I thought we'd start there. Sure. Um, I was just going to mention that it's exciting to watch um, the first um, lots as they line up. Uh, we have four headliners, Jenna Gribben, Cecily Brown, Atel Adnan, Carolyn Walker. Um, and it's very exciting that they're put, um, you know, as a headline as headliners. And for me, it's going to be interesting to watch the Jenna Gribben performance uh, because she's yet to make the game-changing auction price. But with the mature style of works as the ones that are coming up at auction, it will be uh, just interesting to observe the momentum and how collectors will react to that. Do you think a a big price in this kind of sale will get enough attention to bring more both sales and works to auction? I believe so. Yes, uh, might might not achieve the NOI effect, but uh, we're getting there. Hopefully, more mature works are going to be coming up. And um, you know, uh, if you look at the database, Jenna Gribben um, has many works uh, from early two thousands, and they're not as good, in my opinion, as the more recent ones. I think you're right on it. You know, what's interesting about this work is it's the more it's the more recent style of painting. It's a more mature style of painting. It's got some of the classic ribbon elements in it. Um, and it's the same size as the ones that have been sold previously. So it's in that 14 by 11 format um, for those of us who think in inches, um, which have all kind of historically made up to in the 90s and just shy of 100. So they're like, but this is like a bigger estimate. So the question is, does this picture crease that six-figure mark and, and then some? Or or does a 14 by 11 ribbon of any stripe kind of sell, you know, top end 90, 100K, right? I think, you know, we're, we're seeing ourselves in a pickier market, but this is certainly better than any other any other works that I've seen by her come onto the market um, for open sale. Also, in the other two sales, um, there is a Bob Thompson work as the first lot in those sales, and he seems like a similar sort of uh, artist, uh, short career, 
that ended some time ago. So, uh, you know, some constraints on it really getting off the ground, but clearly there, there are several people who think this is the time. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. There was that show at Zwerner last spring, uh, the Maya Angelou show that had a couple of great Bob Thompsons in it. And, the, you know, those in the know who were early followers to Witten, Gilliam, et cetera, had always had Bob Thompson as a name on the periphery of that conversation. So have we gotten to the moment of these primary color figures and kind of allegorical paintings pushing into their own? I mean, Sotheby's certainly seems to think so. If you think about the long lineage of post-war first movers, first lot pieces, they put in like the great Ellsworth Kelly drawing to change that market around. The Linda Bangles from last season, you know, with the Drexler's lot too. Um, so I think that's a nice little painting. I think it's estimated really well um, where where it ultimately lands based on historicals, I think is anybody's guess, but certainly they must be feeling bullish about it. And everyone should feel bullish on the day sales because that's the motto that we used to chant during the Sotheby's celebration evening sales dinners was let's go day sale. And if you're and as a cute observer, you might even see some day sale swag over at Sotheby's um, for those in the know. So uh, I'm Bob Thompson. Just do do me a brief favor and sort of explain for people who he is. I, 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 am I wrong to connect it to Cole Scott? Is that sort of reductionist or? I kind of put it more somewhere between like Cole Scott and Milton Avery is where my little bit better than novice understanding of Bob Thompson is. I've been taught about the artists from collectors who I respect. You know, I'm I'm not in the school of the artists, but I've learned over time kind of what the right dates are. I think the painting coming up is in that is in that category. I think I tend to lean more towards mid-60s than early 60s. Um, they're just a bit brighter, more vibrant in painting. But I think I think you're right. I think somewhere between Cole Scott on the kind of political leaning and subversive nature towards art history, and then a palette that is reminiscent of a Milton Avery style painting, or at least a mid-career Milton Avery style painting. Sophie, uh, there's a Vivian Springford in uh, Phillips sale, and uh, we've been on these podcasts talking about uh, Alice Baber. I thought that might be a good uh, chance for you to update us on sort of this sort of group of women artists uh, and sort of, you know, where you think they're going. Yeah, I mean, Springford is kind of the one that I always think of as leading the pack of these um, color field, I guess you could say school. They probably weren't working directly with the school of men at, the, at that time. But, um, you know, she's had quite a few shows, um, gallery shows, and, and she's been pretty prominent on the auction market. I think this is a great one. It's beautiful colors, that really rich blue center, um, you know, what people are looking for. It's not muddy in any way very vibrant in person. So I think this will produce a, a good result. Her work, I think, have found kind of their prime spot in terms of price point. And I think the estimate is really right on for this one. So I don't see this kind of achieving a, a breakout price point, but it's a great painting. And I think it'll just continue moving from market forward. Um, and, and I mean, I, I'm a huge fan. And I think it presents well in person. So I think they know exactly where this is going to hit with this estimate. There's also a very bright Buford Delaney, you know, one of those uh, intense yellow uh, paintings fairly high up at uh, Phillips uh, sale. And it reminds me, there's a fair amount of Ed Clark uh, on the market too. There's three different day sale lots uh, with, you know, sort of combined low estimate of almost half a million dollars. And I know that's like we had a, a Ed Clark boom 
uh, a couple of years ago, but it almost su- suggests that maybe there's a, a an, another tremor coming. Possibly. I mean, we had the Ed Clark boom up into the point that he sadly passed away. Well, you know, this this elder elder generation of abstract African American color field painters. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it, or it's collections coming to fruition. You know, to to full term, and you know, things are now coming for sale from that period of the art world, and so. Yeah. Uh, speaking of minor abstract expressionists, I guess we're going back to you, so- Sophie. I noticed there are three Adolf Gottlieb's in the day sales, and and he's a sort of artist who work comes and goes, but usually not in sort of groups uh, like this. And there's just this general hovering feeling about people being interested again in abstract expressionism there you know there's a lot of Willem de Kooning work on the market more than there usually is both in the day sales some really good paintings in the day sales as well as some extraordinary ones uh, in the evening sales and I just do you guys have a sense if that's sort of an artist by artist uh, thing that's happening or if this sort of abstraction uh, you know, revival in all its forms. You know, there's all these women from the period who are uh, uh, coming to market, but also, you know, some of these other artists. I think there's certainly a lot of women coming up, uh, women who haven't been on the market. Um, and I think that's, you know, a lot of people are seeing this work across the board right now. Like there's quite a few Grace Hardigans. There's a great Elaine de Kooning, which is not in one of the day sales um, coming up. But, you know, there's also, you know, right before that Vivian Springford we were just talking about, there's an Emily Mason, who's the daughter of Alice Trumbull Mason. Um, she's an artist who falls a little bit later, she's like second wave abstract expressionist, but um, her work has kind of been percolating on the private market. Um, and this is a pretty good painting. It's 54 by 50 inches and beautiful bright colors. So you know, I think there's a general interest mm. in abstraction across the board, but I think the women are leading it. And then, you know, the men like de Kooning, you know, he's having a, he's having a great fall. There's a lot of his stuff out there. And yeah, to your point, Marion, there's some great stuff of his in the day sales as I was just browsing through them in person uh, recently. They're striking. So I think there's an interest across the board. And, and I think it's two, di- I think it's two different stories, really. Um, maybe even three different stories. You've got the kind of Abex masterpieces in one element. You've got the de Kooning estate and the Solenter picture in particular. And then you've got this rediscovery, new discovery, which is a sort of season in, season out trend of digging up names from the past that were underrepresented at the time. And, and that ebbs and flows as to what it looks like or what the group is made up of. And then, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I think you've got some of this ABEX material that's coming for sale because it's the term of the collection or it's tied to a larger consignment. Um, Somebody like Gottlieb, I don't know that there's something there that's moving the dial, right? I think that, I don't think that the nature of the Gottlieb collector has changed very much. I had a conversation about that this summer and you know i the motive the motivation for the gottlieb market to change i don't think is hinged on the ever more distant you know reachability of getting to a master de Kooning. i think those things are kind of now separate from each other um there's probably more action in the rediscovery new names in the female late abex canon and in the top end of a finding a masterpiece than there is in the 
they sell Gottlieb category. Uh, it's sort of like Gottlieb has, uh, as an artist, not on his individual works, has missed a, a kind of chance to move into a, a role that's now being filled with uh, other, in many ways, more interesting and different works. T- totally. I think the, the story has been told. There's no, there's no driver out there trying to recontextualize this into a new story. It's just the ABEX story winding its way into the day sale. When we have day sales with six-figure, seven-figure artworks in them. Well, and that's uh, uh, there's a similar story with Robert Motherwell. I mean, anything that's not a, a Spanish elegy, uh, an elegy for the Spanish Republic, is just sort of you know, oh, he was an interesting artist. And there are a whole group of um, uh, Motherwells. I think there's six of them uh, in these day sales as well, uh, sort of following that same thing. But and, and just to finish that, there's seven different Helen Frankenthalers. And I think that may be more just because there's just so much to sell. They have to go in the day sales because you just can't have seven more in the evening. In a real variety of quality. I think there's some pretty ropey ones out there and there's some pretty magical ones out there. Um, so, you know. It's basically if you're if you're shopping for Frankenthaler real estate or if you're going for a connoisseur picture and what your budget is. There is one Frankenthaler that I thought was a Julian Schnabel, and I'm not sure who who that's directed at. Is that the purpley one with the swirl yes. in it? Yeah, that yeah. that looks like a really. I think I believe that picture is from the 80s. I haven't looked at the cataloging, but yeah, yeah 1985. Looks like it, it kind of reminds me of like a late Twombly, like somebody put his hand against put her hand against the canvas and was like paint this. So. <laughs> And then, and then there's also this surprising. I mean, is a in a slightly uh, different direction. Um, there's a whole group of Wesselmans. Some of them are just drawings uh, and all. And there's a um, in the color fields. There's about four Morris Lewis uh, uh, paintings. I mean, there is a sort of lot. There's John Wesley. Who, who there are four different works, five different works. Sorry, um, you know, I assume that's uh, you know, he, uh, you put it out. He died uh, recently. And is that is that people cleaning their collections or people thinking, hey, maybe now's the time that people are interested in John Wesley? John Wesley's always been that kind of middle middle of the sale day sale artist. Back in even my like 2014 days of you know work being at Phillips, there were John Wesley's of legs and swans and heads and bodies, and you know it's he's just been that guy. Like I don't think we're going to see that break into an evening sale as much as I feel like some listeners of this podcast may want to have that happen because they like the artist so much. But uh, you know he's, he's a day sale guy. That's his thing. Now, Arena, this is especially for you. There are six Scott Cons in the day sales. Uh, there, I think there's several more in the 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 evening sa- sales. And so I thought I thought I would sort of get your take on uh, the Scott Con market. There's there's a lot going on there. There is a lot actually. I met Scott last weekend, which was fun. Uh, we chatted extensively on his market in Asia and his upcoming museum show. <laughs> so um, we uh, we came to the conclusion that Asian market is booming and uh, he's overall very excited to watch his um, works coming up at auctions. But um, I think uh, I think again, there's really good Scott cons and there and there's mediocre Scott cons. So uh, depending on which ones perform at the level, we will see at the day sales. So you have to tell me a little bit more about that meeting because we're coming up on the one year anniversary of this the whole thing taking off for him. Here's a guy who's you know uh, been painting for a very long time uh, and and not necessarily uh, selling during all of that that time and suddenly has his market 
just go supernova in the space uh, of a year. Is he taking it all in stride? Is it like winning the lottery? Did he, you know, get the Powerball of art? To Tell us more. Um, he's incredibly humble and um, just lovely person to talk to. So that was my impression of Scott, but he's taking it very well. Um, I attended a private collection of viewing um, at um, a friend of mine. So um, he had he had loaned a piece from Elmin uh, to be displayed at his house, uh, which was um, a beautiful work. Um, I believe it was from the 80s. So um, Scott is definitely definitely uh, taking it very well, but um, he's excited what, what else is coming up for him. He's hoping for a museum show in the U.S., certainly. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm excited to see what, what's coming up next. Is there not a show planned? Is this still sort of the, the goal is to get him sort of institutional recognition? Well, uh, nothing, uh, nothing, is, uh, nothing is set yet. So that's at least what he told me. So going back to the sales, I, I uh, we're trying Kenneth Noland again. I think there's one or two evening sale works, and there's definitely four works in the the day sales. Uh, I, I it, the spring it didn't feel like they they lit the match. They they sold a couple of paintings, but not quite where they were hoping uh, to. Is this just sort of round two? We're just going to keep throwing stuff at the wall and see if we find the right combination of buyers and works. No one has an opinion on, on, uh, I'd say probably, I feel like, you know, there were those two great ones last season that felt right. It felt like a good moment. Um, it wasn't as exciting as I think the teams had hoped. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think no one has to have the particular buyer and has to kind of just like all line up for him. I think that Christie's Christie's has, all three or two. Um, I particularly like the the one that's lot number 10, Red Source. Um, that's the target. Uh, it's really striking in colors, but we'll see what they do. Um, I'm personally not holding, <laughs> holding my breath, but uh, I, I think everything has to line up right for Nolan. Well, there's definitely one in the evening sale at um, Sotheby's, and there's a Chevron work as well. But yes, the the red and yellow work at um, uh, Christie's has a, a, a certain appeal uh, to it, and they've put it in this run between Lynn Drexler and a De Kooning and a Grace Hardigan, which suggests they're they're trying. Yeah, it's a um, nice little set there they have going that that nolan in the day sale is like a real 80s special like color wise too i think it's got mauve in it it's a, it's a particular paint color i also noticed there were about um three angel otero works uh in the day sales there might even be a couple in the evening uh, uh, i'm not sure uh is that sort of a kind of contemporary take on a lot of this abstraction and color uh is it just a coincidence or is that, you know a sense that that his market is moving there was a feel that otero the, you know the otero is one of those breakout artists when he first came on the scene with his paint skins you know works and then it it kind of had its it did its flow through as kind of a, a discovery thing and then it trailed off and then you know the estimates didn't match the purchase prices and so Otero kind of fell out of the auctions um and then then there kind of felt like there was a revival or a refocusing there and I know he's came out with a new new body newer body of work um I feel like that could be just collection that could just be collection management on the whole that that makes sense I'm uh, you know 
there's there's a bunch of these artists that their representation is uh, either changing or they're having new new shows and there's a, a round of work uh, uh, almost on the other side there's uh, four Rashid Johnsons in the day sales I think there may be a couple more in the evening sa- sales definitely and that I mean that seems to have no no abatement in terms of interest um, but also you know we've been down this Rashid market before you know there was a moment where these things all broke out in the evening sale and then they were everywhere and then there was a lot of clawing back of the market and then he came out with the anxious man series and the tile and the shelves went away and so it's a question of how how much more does that have to run you know i thought the Mallorca show this summer was impressive but it was you know it's it's a repetition on a theme so I think there's a t- there's a tile piece at Phillips in the evening sale that looks pretty interesting. I mean, I remember when one of those turned up at Sotheby's in a few seasons ago in a charity sale, and it went nuts. And all of a sudden, it was like the Rashid Johnson market back, or it's on like all of a sudden it's like whoa, who who knew a Rashid Johnson could sell like that these days? Now we've seen this kind of extensive amount of you know growth for the anxious men series um you know people like them they're digestible it's um they look they look good as well so yeah they're 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 poignant but they also they like they're pretty paintings sophie you've remarked that um you know dallas uh there are a lot of collectors that own uh his work uh is there just a sense that there's just strong demand out there that that you know certain places people have really latched on? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I also think Dallas is a great set of collectors. Um, definitely have a good eye and look towards um, specific artists. But yeah, there are definitely quite a few there that I, I saw um, while living there. Uh, that feels like a lifetime ago. But yeah, I mean, I, I think he has a general draw um, outside of New York as well. Uh, so Dallas is a good home for him. And Sophie, you were also looking at Pat Steer in these sales. And the Pat Steer, the Paris Waterfall, that's at Sotheby's in the day sale um, from 1990. Just struck me in person. I think when there's, uh, you know, nothing better than seeing art in person. And I didn't even know it was in the sale. And I think it could produce a great result. It's not as big as some of her works that are, you know, nearing her auction record. Um, it doesn't go over a hundred inches, which all of her top, I think five pieces do, but it's black and white color scheme, great date. And um, I think it'll have a good result. Do you think sometimes being in the day sale can help uh, advance the price when there's sort of less pressure on it as, as sort of an evening sale? We're going to prove something about Pat Steer. I mean, the, she, she's an artist that everyone talks about but has not really broken out in terms of uh, market performance over the last few years. Yeah, I think this, you know, this is a, a definitely a, a low pressure placement um, for the piece. And, you know, I think it stands out amongst the works that it's kind of sitting around in the sale and you know i think she's she's tried a few times she's not i think she's kind of found her place in the market um these are really really large paintings so they're going to a particular type of buyer but yeah i think it's it's interesting where they place it and i think it'll still do well it'll drive some excitement as it's farther down in the sale so maybe some people will have nodded off a little bit and they'll come back to life for it. So you got to put things, you got to place them to keep people interested. There are seven works by Louise Nevelson in the day sales. I'm very excited to watch that one, actually. But do you 
do you have any idea what's driving it? I mean, it's a lot of money. The, the aggregate low estimate is nearly a million and a half. Well, her market um, back in tw- uh, 2021, it was like the best year for her on the record, but the new record set at 1.4 uh, for one of the white painted like wood installation at Christie's. And her overall total sales were like at seven, um, like seven something, 7.5 maybe. Um, so I'm, I'm, it's no surprise that so many works are coming up right now, even though she's not a household name, um, certainly not yet, but, um, she's one of the most influential, um, you know, sculptors and the pioneer of installation art. Um, and, uh, her market has just started showing great numbers and volumes. Was it that way in the spring as well? Or is this sort of almost a seasonal thing? Cause I, I, I hadn't really noticed it uh earlier in the year um i'm not sure george uh have we seen any nevelson back in spring i mean nevelson's sort of perennial i wasn't aware of any kind of major breakout sale in a nevelson market you know we get like a a handful of the classic dark ones and then you get sort of a rogue white one now and again um i think the last time i felt like there was a big sale breakout that was for a uh for a white one like a couple of seasons ago. And Christie's has a white one in the day sale. Uh, that's sort of a, a central uh, piece of all of this. And George, we can't have a conversation about day sales without um, pointing out that Richard Estes has three works uh, in these sales. I'm more of a Robert Bechtel man. I'm going to put it on the record. You know, I love the mundane San Francisco lifestyle paintings. Um, I'll take a brown, you know, brown wood, wood paneled station wagon with some people standing awkwardly in front of it all day long. But yeah, Richard Estes, like there's just something about it. Like can't get away from those ferry ride paintings and the, you know, street scenes. And, you know, to his credit, there's like some late ones that are even still pretty crisp. So you mentioned this earlier about sort of, you know, go day sale. I mean, is this... When you're working at running a day sale, are you actively trying to bring in two or three different works by an artist that you think, you know, if you can get the right sale, you can get momentum on it? Or is it a little more accidental than that? I think it's a sense of balance, right? You've got to leave the door open for a watershed kind of like watershed group moment of like a big consignment that hits that might be a makeup of that's that's dictated by the evening sale. So you've got to leave a chunk of the sale open for whatever big business might be you know, happening elsewhere in the company in a state or divorce, whatever. Um, and then you want to build, then, you know, everyone's got their different tastes. You can see it as like different heads take over the day sales or, you know, whoever's running a certain session, what that kind of looks like and that curatorial element. Cause it's like, what, it's like sort of what gets you out of bed to write proposals for it. And that changes with, with the seasons. And also, you know, based on if people are more academic leaning or market leaning, et cetera, et cetera. Um, my my big thing when I ran day sales is like you don't want the day sale to fight against itself, right? So if you think you've got the market capacity to take on five Kusama Infinity Nets that come from different collectors, like that's policy. But sure, I mean we saw it at Christie's when they had what ten plus um, Demon Corns in, in one go, right? Like kudos Freelander on that one. Um, well, that was they had twenty overall. They had to shove ten in the day sale. Sale. You know, that's the uh, that's the balance. You don't want your sale to fight against itself because you're already vying for attention against 
the other two plus you know, three auction houses, depending on what they've got, you know, like there's 10 Ernie Barnes coming up for sale across the three of the houses, not including bond, or including bond, so four houses. Um, and then everything that's happening in Chelsea, or if you're in London, everything that's happening in Mayfair, or if you're in Hong Kong, everything that's happening in the Queens Tower, you know, like you've got, you've got to think about the lay of the land and what else is going on, right? And like, why would somebody buy it from auction versus vis-a-vis buy it from a gallery? Like what's, what's the trade-off? So you got to get the pricing right. You got to get the, the run of them correct so that the crescendo moment happens. You can sell the bad ones well based on the good ones, but you don't want to lose your bidders for the great one on the bad one. So it's, it's, it's a balancing act. You know, it's an, or there's going to be high points and low points and troughs and peaks, and you've got to, you got to put it all together. Well, there, there are in all of the sales, uh, interesting ebbs and flows. And there's, you know, there's some very significant works in the, you know, three, $400,000 estimates coming, you know, sort of deep in the sales, uh, which, which, which suggests that someone's sort of saying, okay, maybe we can get people to focus back again here because they're, they're run set up around them. I mean, there are some 90s masterpieces by artists who are currently in major museum shows in New York City, estimated under $50,000 in these sales. Like that's that's the level of material that's out there. I'm not going to tell you which one because I'd like to bid on it, but... (laughs) (laughs) But do we think that's because, you know, the sales have gotten... There are so many artists who are valuable now and the sales have gotten so chock full of, you know, these... The, the Christina Quarles of the world that everyone's ch- chasing after. There, there's so much that the day sales now have to have almost like a setup of being multiple sales with the rhythm of a sale. As we, you know, we talked now they're opening like a, an evening sale does like four or five. Look at, look at the Sotheby's day sale. There's like a, there's a, there's a great Drexler up front, like in the first 10 or 15 lots, I believe. And then there's a really nice work kind of, two thirds of the way back in the sale, like a really great work on paper, but they're, you know, a season ago, those would probably be more smashed next to each other. And now they've been placed further away in the sales from each other. And yeah, so I think that is part of it. And you also build sales within sales around, maybe you have a single, a named, a named collection run, right. That's its own curated group. And that's always the benefit when you have somebody else's personal collection that, you know, that builds their taste around it. And you get to meet the people who also share that taste and create those connections that they might not have otherwise connected to. Um, You know, kind of grossly, you can run day sales by what you think is going to sell the best and where you think you're going to have some rough patches. And you can also organize it by color. Or you can be like, these are pictures of people, or this is an abstract section, or this is the photo ghetto. You know, like, or here's the sculpture we didn't know what to do with. I mean, I think when I ran the sales, there was like a group of five artists that were always the last lot, without fail. It was like, Eve Klein table, last lot. So every every single time, it's like that's the last lot, last lot special. Um, well, are, are, is it still? I mean, after the pandemic, the day sales used to be like a a, a bazaar, you know, with lots of people milling about, about, gossiping, catching up, and then you know, hearing their lot come up and uh, excusing themselves and bidding, and then coming back to the the coffee clutch. Uh, I'm I don't know if that's still the case or if they've moved to you know everyone's sort of paying attention online. I was sitting in the sales in May. Coffee cart was up and running, and it was nice to be there and you know say hi, shake some hands, and get back into it. That's what I always loved about the day sense. Was like you can you could walk around on the back and have a chat. And my my goal was always can I sell a painting privately while the day sale is going on? Because as as a person manning the phone booth, you've you've done your work right. You you've got your bid book in front of you. It's you know it's pencils up. It's 
time to take the bids. You're not going to attract a bunch more interest as the sales going on. So like what other business can you do? Um, you know, that's, that's always the fun game of that bizarre. And I agree with you. I think that's a perfect word for it, which I hope the online sale never really kills because that's the true marketplace. George, there's one other thing I was curious about, and I'm going to, uh, uh, try hard to get his name, but David Vinerovitz, there are three works for about, you know, an aggregate of a million dollars. So, you know, some significant uh, uh, amount of money and, and works. And, and he's not an artist who, you know, is a, a mainstay. And I was just curious to get your take on that. Yeah, that's kind of the story of a Whitney exhibition that kept on going, right? I think there's a limited amount of paper of work out there in the market that's really gonna shake loose. Um, it's kind of funny that it comes along the same, sort of at the same time as a big Gober consignment that's that's hitting the block. Um, it's kind of American Gothic you know, feeling. And then obviously like the AIDS crisis and we had a lot of discovery in that kind of 90s, 80s, 90s downtown New York scene, right? With like Martin Wong breaking out and, all of that. So it's interesting that Wanarovitz like keeps going and it trickles out and it has an audience and it has an audience that seems to be more engaged than, you know, I'm trying to think of somebody else in that group, like Paul Tech or Peter Hujar, right? It's actually captivated a larger audience that seems to bid on it. I, you know, I don't see why there's going to be massive fireworks over it unless one particular client I could guess on a few who they might be. I would put them in the same boat as Martin Wong pretty much um or, or peter saul but but there there are three martin wongs too by the way and there's two or three peter hoosiers uh, uh, i believe so it's i mean all those names are represented but again that's like that's probably was the hyper contemporary of some of these older collections that they bought kind of at the end of their collecting career right so as this stuff gets becomes notable and some you know cousin says hey did you see this price this thing made like honestly the school my kids go to they still talk about how they sold a martin wong out of the dorm room for a million bucks you know it's like replicable i don't i don't know you know <laughs> so what do they got in the other dorms uh paul jenkins which i told them they should just appreciate <laughs> apologies to all the paul jenkins consigners out there <laughs> uh I think that covers it. Is there anything else you guys uh, uh, see or notice that you want to mention, especially as it connects to sort of uh, the the rest of the private market? Um, I mean, we didn't we didn't get to touch on Sean Scully, but I am curious if if early Sean Scully can hold muster against the wall of light. That's my. So I'm glad you brought that 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 up. I you know uh, was struck by there is a very large green. Um, Sean Scully from 1970 or so that was one of the opening um, works in the first room or two of the Philadelphia retrospective. And it, it was a pretty impressive painting uh, in person, uh, but it's in a day sale and it, it doesn't look like what most people think of as a, you know, a landline or a, a, a wall of light. So that that's understandable, but it, and there's a lot of Sean Scully available. I'm assuming a product of that uh, retrospective and sort of either increased demand and interest from all, all that. It just doesn't extend back to the early works. No, and I don't think it ever really has. And I don't think much before this retrospective, there's been much attention played on it. Most museum shows are focused around a current body of work, be it Wall of Light, Doric Light, Ionian Sea, whatever whatever it is, or whatever the private jet may take them to paint. Um, you know, Kung Fu lessons notwithstanding. Um, 
but I just, I don't know. One green paintings. You're talking to someone who like can't help but buy green paintings, but that's a big field of green. Um, and it doesn't, and it's also, it's very rigid, right? And if you, if you've, I, I unfortunately watched the BBC documentary on Scully. So he was painting these, it's an academic painting. He's basically out of school and like trying to figure it out and see if he can make a living as a painter. And he was at Harvard. He, he was spending a year at a fellowship at Harvard talking about an academic painting. I mean, it was clearly working out ideas and, and those were, uh, you can see how those ideas end up in his uh, later body of work, but it's very different from his later body of work. It almost feels like a Peter Schuch or, you know, there's a name I'm going to butcher, but it kind of has that rigid, rigid op art kind of feel to it. It doesn't have that fluidity, you know, the heavy paint and the rabbit skin glue and all that in it. And there is a uh, a big painting by him, isn't there, in in somewhere in the sales? Peter Schuf, yeah, probably yeah. In like the sort of back three quarters to six eighths of somebody's sale. <laughs> it's a big, colorful painting. If abstraction is is the is is uh, gaining momentum, there might be a fan out there for it. Yeah, I mean, I used to say Victor Vazzarelli was recession proof, you know, but I don't know if op, if op art and like wall, large wall dressing abstraction is the same, so. That, uh, that like photorealism, that's the, the trend that keeps, you know, threatening to come, but never fully arrives. You'll just, y'all just wait for the Bechtel market. It's coming. It's coming hot. All right, guys, the, uh, George, Arena, Sophie, thank you guys so much for taking the time. Thanks, Marion. Pleasure as always. Thank you for joining us for Live Arts Market Pulse. The Artelligence Podcast is edited by Colin Ketchum, who also composed the original music. Come back next week, and don't forget to download the Live Art app or visit us at liveart.io.